1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm your host, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be joined by Dr. Simon Topping, who will be speaking to us about his recently published book with Bloomsbury Press in 2022, Northern Ireland, the United States, and the Second World War. In this book, Dr. Topping analyzes the American military presence in Northern Ireland during World War II examining the role of the government in Northern Ireland in managing this, quote, friendly invasion, the diplomatic and military rationales for the deployment, the attitude of Americans as well as locals to their posting, and the effect of U.S. presence on local political dynamics um, as well as Irish politics more generally. Um, He explores a number of different aspects of this deployment, really going into detail about something that maybe on an overall history timeline, seems like a short period of time. But what this book clearly draws attention to and shows is what kind of big impact the United States deployment in World War II had um, on Northern Ireland and on US relations with this part of the world. So I'm very excited to have Dr. Topping with us today to speak about his book. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me on.
1: So to start off with, the same question I ask everyone is if you could just introduce us a bit to the research question and goal of your book and how you came to write it, please.
2: Okay. The uh, The goal of the book is kind of, as you've outlined, uh, I'm looking at uh, a variety of different relationships in relation to uh, the American presence in Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm looking at the impact of the Americans on the local civilian population. I'm having a look at it in relation to uh, local sectarian dynamics, uh, transatlantic relations, cross-border relations in the island of Ireland, uh, relations between the British and the uh, Americans. I'm looking at the social dynamics of it, um, relationships between locals and American soldiers, particularly women. I'm looking at the importation of American racial segregation into Northern Ireland uh, and seeing the impact that that had on a, a... a society which was already segregated, but along religious or ethnic lines. Uh, and beyond that, I'm also looking at it in terms of diasporic history, uh, looking at the reconnection of what I call uh, or the reconnection of Ulster with American, what I'm calling Ulster American revivalism. Uh, and this is a reconnection with the Uh, the immigrants, mainly Presbyterians, who left Ulster in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries uh, and participated in the revolution. So there's a reconnection with that. Uh, I'm looking at the impact on American politics through the Irish-American lobby. And I have a chapter, actually I have two chapters on David Gray, who was the U.S. minister in Dublin during the war and uh his attitude towards Irish Americans and the devil era administration in uh, in what was then era
1: lovely um thank you and what drew you to write this book what was why these questions why was this what you wanted to investigate
2: well this started off uh, from a very modest roots. When I was uh, doing my PhD on the Republican Party and civil rights in the 30s and 40s, I was going through the New York Times index. So back in the day when it was the big telephone directory sized index. And I thought I'd have a look and see what met, uh, what mentions there were of Belfast or Northern Ireland, obviously, which is where I'm from. And I came across a very short article. It's about 50 words from uh, May 1944, which reported that an American soldier had been executed for the murder of a civilian in Belfast. Now, I had a a, a general sense that the Americans had been in Northern Ireland during the war, but I didn't really didn't know very much about it. And there was even actually a a photograph of my father who was a teenager during the war uh, and a couple of his friends with a GI in a street in Belfast, photo, which sadly is lost. So I have that kind of uh, tenuous connection with it. So the article um, uh, gave me the name of the American soldier who was executed. He was called Wiley Harris. So I did some digging on him and uh, it turned out he was an African-American soldier. So my background is as a civil rights scholar. Um, uh, So I decided to follow this up and Look at his case in particular, but the reaction of the people of Northern Ireland to the Americans more generally. So it actually began uh, that it was going to be an article on uh, African Americans in Northern Ireland. But once I got into the archives, I found that there was so much more going on um, in uh, relation to the Americans. Uh, So this included how Stormont was going to, Stormont, the government of Northern Ireland, uh, was going to manage them. Why they were sent to Northern Ireland and not somewhere else, what impact this had on local politics and so on. Uh, so it began as an article. I've actually written three articles on the experiences of Black GIs in Northern Ireland, and uh, and then it, it became uh, it became the book, and it just just kept mushrooming. So looking at uh, gender relations, uh, social history, um, and as I mentioned, sort of diasporic history as well.
1: I think a lot of books start off as articles, and then we find the archives and go, oh, wait a second. So it's a familiar story. um, And I definitely am going to be asking you about pieces of that that you've already mentioned. Um, But to start off with, I wonder if you could explain a bit to our audience, not just why did American troops end up in Northern Ireland, but particularly the role of Stormont, especially the role of the Northern Irish government at the time. Why did they want an American deployment? What did they hope to gain from it? both immediately and in the longer term?
2: Okay, well, let's start with Stormont, because actually, because Stormont was a devolved government, it was ultimately accountable to London. So actually, Stormont was not part of these discussions. Uh, These discussions began in, um, actually, in around about March, February, March 1941, so long before America joins the war. There were tentative discussions about a hypothetical American deployment to the UK, and uh, uh, and throughout 1941, well, from about mid 1941, as part of land lease, uh, the British were building bases with American money and American workmen or technicians in places like Londonderry uh, and building aerodromes and so on, uh, in anticipation of uh, an American presence. Now, obviously, they denied that this was anything to do with the Americans joining the war, but it was a if it wasn't a violation of American neutrality, it was certainly introducing an an element of elasticity into American neutrality. So Stormont doesn't find out about this until um, January 1942, Uh, just uh, uh, perhaps a week, 10 days, a couple of weeks before the Americans are on their way. The Prime Minister, uh, John Andrews, is summoned to London, uh, and basically he's told that the Americans are coming. Now, the not far from seeing this as a snub, the Unionist government uh, was absolutely delighted because what this did was it put uh, Northern Ireland at the centre of the British war effort. Uh, what it also did was it, uh, it, it fortified partition. So in 1940, uh, the uh, UK government had offered to end partition in return for era joining the war effort. And they did this without consulting the Unionist government. And the Unionist government always had a sense that, that Britain would sell them out, given half a chance. But what this did was it um, made them suddenly indispensable. The broader context of this is that up until 1938, uh, 37 or 38, um, the Royal Navy had ports, so-called treaty ports, in um, era. So I refer to what's now the Republic of Ireland as era. That was kind of the, the, the given name of it at the time. And these treaty ports were returned. And what this meant was that uh, they, it made Atlantic convoys more difficult to defend. So with the handing back of these ports, Northern Ireland becomes indispensable and Northern Ireland needs to be fortified. Uh, So Stormont is delighted uh, to host the Americans. Um, And um, there is also a sense uh, more broadly, not just within the government, but within the population uh, that the Americans joining the war means that the war is winnable in a way that the war has not been winnable. Um, at, at, at any point really for uh, the British. Uh, so it has a number of impacts in, in that regard. Um, but as I say, I think the key one for Northern Ireland is that it, it makes Northern Ireland important and Northern Ireland's in the headlines um, and it reinforces the sense that Northern Ireland is in the war. Now, Belfast had been blitzed in um, April and May 1941. So the civilian population absolutely knew that uh, Northern Ireland was in the war. Um, But this gives a sort of sense of purpose to uh, Stormont.
1: So that's a really clear idea of why the Northern Irish government was interested in having Americans deploy. Um, And so it makes sense that, as you said, they wanted to have a friendly invasion, right? The idea is that they wanted to make sure the Americans had an easy time of it in Northern Ireland. Um, But what problems did this create by... The government kind of rolling out the red carpet, as it were, to the Americans.
2: Well, the the problem, the problems were uh, really the logistical, as much as anything. Now, there are fears that uh, that the the kind of on off um, IRA campaign um, would be reignited by the presence of the Americans. So, the IRA had had a campaign on mainland Britain at the start of the war, and it had one in um, ERA um, both of which had failed and, um, seen many of its members, uh, interned or indeed executed. So there is a fear that, um, that American soldiers, particularly those of an Irish American background might be susceptible to the messages of Irish Republicanism. Uh, so there is a need to keep them, uh, apart from, uh, from that. There is a more general, Management issue in that you have tens of thousands of young men coming into your country, and uh, this will bring with it all the the problems that you would associate, which can be summed up in over pet, over sex, and over here when it comes to uh, the Americans. What you have added to this is uh, bringing them into a conservative society in terms of religious outlooks, but also a divided society uh, in that you will have one. Uh, Part of the community, the Protestant or Unionist part of the community, which will welcome the Americans with open arms and the nationalist or Catholic side of the community being more ambivalent, uh, if not hostile, towards uh, the Americans. Um, Mostly that hostility was on the point of principle rather than um, hostility against individual Americans, but it's certainly a concern. And then, and I imagine we'll talk a little bit about this later, you can throw uh, race and Jim Crow segregation into the mix, which creates another layer of complexity. Um, and what's also worth noting here is that because Northern Ireland is the first part of the UK to host American troops, it sort of becomes a, a testing ground for um, how to manage troops when they arrive in much greater numbers. In places like you know Devon and Cornwall and the the south uh, southeast southwest of England, uh, a little bit later on.
1: So I do want to get into these details about the problems that it causes. Um, and the first is this idea of keeping the Americans entertained. Why was that a problem, and how did they try to solve it? Did it work? What can we it find wor- out about that?
2: Well, it works up to a point. Uh, the uh, c- concerns are. Um, how are you going? As you outline, how are you going to keep all of these young men entertained? Now, bear in mind, by the start of nineteen forty-four, there are one hundred thousand Americans in Northern Ireland, which constitutes about ten percent of the population. So, this influx is going to have uh, an impact on any society. Uh, now, initially. Uh, the American Red Cross comes across in uh, February 1942. And initially, actually, they they don't really cooperate with the local authorities. They want to keep it in-house, but this is just impossible. So over the course of 1942, the uh, Northern Ireland government, um, with um, Sir Basil Brooke, who was the Minister of Commerce, um, begins trying to find ways to manage and entertain Uh, the Americans. So Brooks sets up by the end of the war, certainly by 1944, he set up 45 hospitality committees throughout the country. Uh, And these are sometimes they're just halls that are set up so the uh, soldiers have somewhere to go when they're on leave. Um, They host dances, they host uh, trips, art exhibitions, all of these sorts of things. And they're trying to provide wholesome distractions because the alternative is what uh, one American called the pub and the pickup. So if they're not doing these wholesome activities, they're going to be drinking, um, and they're going to be uh, going to red light districts uh, and creating all the, the, the problems that come with that. Uh, so it's imperative that the impact is minimized. Um, and if you add in the sectarian dimension to this, um, you know, if American soldiers are misbehaving or they're getting into fights in Catholic areas, there's there's a propaganda value for that for Irish Republicans and also for the Axis. So it's extremely important that these uh, men, and bear in mind, most of, these, most of these men are 19, 20, 21 years old. They've never been away from home before, and uh, they've been plonked down um, in this faraway land where it seems to rain all the time and everything's shut on a Sunday.
1: The shot on a Sunday does seem to come through really strongly in the book, which uh, I want to highlight for readers does look at the high level stuff of the politics at the government level, but really does also get into some quite evocative um, examinations of particular intersections of how these things play out. So uh, fine grained complaints of what this looks like or the issue of this particular pub. Um, So the book does a really good job of kind of looking at the high level stuff and very much on the ground as well. Um, And so one thing that came out particularly in these instances of friction is this tension over legal jurisdiction. So can you explain to us what that problem was, and particularly how that ended up overlapping with race?
2: Yeah, what you have is um, a kind of negotiation which is go- is kind of ongoing as the Americans are en route to Northern Ireland, and this is over who will have uh, legal jurisdiction over American troops, um, and particularly for crimes committed by American troops against civilians. So the Americans were pretty insistent that they would have legal jurisdiction. Now, this... Um, This is for a number of reasons. Now, on one level, uh, it's because they don't trust uh, foreign judicial systems and uh, they don't want to hand their troops over to even a friendly judicial system. Uh, But there's the more important aspect of it from a military point of view is uh, what military justice is about. So military justice is about justice, as you would expect, but it's also about discipline and making examples of people uh, in order to maintain morale or maintain discipline more generally. Um, now, almost as a condition of the acceptance or of the sending of American troops, the British passed the, vote, the um, Visiting Forces Act in uh, the summer of 1942. And this ceded legal jurisdiction to the Americans over crimes committed by their troops, even if those crimes were committed by, against uh, civilians. Now, this was complicated, and we see this in Northern Ireland because where a murder was committed or a killing occurred, there was also a coroner's court, which often took uh, place before any court martial. So there was a there was a danger that if the coroner's court and the court martial came to very different conclusions, it could create friction. So if the military justice was perceived to be lenient towards American servicemen, uh, now more often than not, uh, American justice was much harsher than uh, UK civilian justice. Um, But there were rumors that uh, American soldiers were being deployed abroad to avoid, um, to avoid court-martials or to avoid uh, being tried for their crimes. So it is hugely complex. uh, And, and becomes additionally complex when uh, race is introduced into the equation.
1: And so, how did they end up resolving this issue, and how did they end up dealing with the fact of U.S. segregation?
2: Uh, well, where segregation is concerned, uh, the UK authorities did not want African American soldiers, and they expressly told the Americans that they didn't want black soldiers. A an American officer. Uh, who had been sent to kind of lay the groundwork for the American presence, uh, wrote to his superiors and said, under no circumstances should you send black troops. Now, the reason for this was kind of basic and, uh, and base and racist. Uh, British officials were worried about what they euphemistically called brown babies. So what would happen a year, nine months, a year after these African-American troops left and uh, they left behind uh, illegitimate children um, in what was pretty much an entirely white uh, society. One estimate from um, a story, and this is an older book, but uh, reckons there were only about 10,000 black people in the entire UK at the start of the Second World War. I suspect the figure is a little bit higher than that, but um, this was essentially an all-white society and even more so in Northern Ireland. So um, there is that um, element to it, which we can't get away from the fact that it is uh, it is racist. Now, uh, this is notwithstanding the fact that you had West Indian um, uh, airmen in particular are coming across. You had the occasional um, African-American fighting inside the RAF. You also had... Um, uh, Honduran foresters. I think they were based in, in Scotland. Um, you may well have also had, perhaps not so much in the second world war, but you may have also had Indian troops. Um, so they are worried about introducing, um, black soldiers into an all white society. Uh, but the American policy was that if a country, in this case, the UK, requested American troops which Churchill had then the Americans would decide which troops were sent uh, and that meant that they would send black troops in proportion to their numbers uh, now similar problems emerged in Australia which had a white's only policy um, legally had a white's only immigration policy but they had to um, they had to adjust uh, to uh, to this um, and it also had political implications at home for Roosevelt it's not something to talk about in the book but um, that Roosevelt won the black vote and uh, one of the ways in which he won the black vote was to introduce conscription without uh, uh, without uh, uh, racial prejudice although the military was still segregated um, there's also a sense with this that if black tro- if black troops arrive then, what happens? To, to, does Britain introduce a colour bar? In other words, does it introduce Jim Crow-style American segregation, or does it ignore segregation? And there are debates at cabinet level about what to do here, uh, and some of these uh, debates and some of the opinions expressed aren't um, aren't favoured by posterity, shall we say? Um, and and there's a, there's a fear too that if black soldiers black American soldiers come to the UK and they're mistreated, this will be poisonous in the empire and particularly in India. So ultimately, uh, the UK government and Stormont uh, decide that there will be no colour bar, that uh, there will be no uh, attempt to segregate American soldiers. They can go to whatever bars they want to, they can go to whatever towns they want to. However, uh, if the Americans imposed informal segregation, then the response of the authorities was essentially to ignore it, um, but they wouldn't enforce it. They were very explicit. The Home Office sent instructions to Brooke um, telling him that there was to be no enforcement of segregation. And Brooke, interestingly, um, some paradoxically in many ways, uh, Brooke was famous for um, his anti-Catholic comments in the 1930s, but he was really uncomfortable at the idea of discriminating against African-American soldiers. Um, he, he, he really didn't like this. Now what I did find was a lot of officials are reluctant to commit their thoughts to paper, but where Brooke does talk about it, it is that he is against discrimination against uh, African-American soldiers.
1: So that was a really interesting part of the book in discussing the number of different ways in which race caused tension. It wasn't one simple problem. It was all interconnected. And one of them in particular, this idea of the fear of the brown baby, seemed actually to be a bigger fear about American soldiers of any race um, forming romantic relationships with local girls. Um, And I was particularly struck by how tricky these marriages that did somewhat inevitably end up forming, um, were for the US military. So why did the US military not want its soldiers to marry local girls? And how did this end up being a problem even after both the deployment and the war ended?
2: Well, I'll start with the issue of race. I've only been able to find one reference to a local woman marrying an African-American soldier. Now, this did happen, um, uh, especially in the uh, Tiger Bay area of Cardiff. Um, It's reckoned that dozens of local women married African-American soldiers. But um, one of the issues was that what were called misogynist or misogynist uh, relationships were illegal in about half of the United States. So, uh, a, a British woman, whether it's from Northern Ireland or wherever, marrying an African American soldier might end up in Mississippi or South Carolina or somewhere where their union was not legal, uh, where their children would not be legitimate. Um, and this was one of the warnings that was uh, given to you know to to women and to, to black soldiers. Um, more generally, the authorities felt that uh, marriage was problematic for a number of reasons now prior to the first the second world war rather prior to the second world war marriage was include was encouraged and uh, the. US military even under its own laws had no uh, right to refuse uh, soldiers um, wanting to get married um, but they did fear that it would be bad for morale if certain soldiers were married and others weren't or soldiers had to leave their wives at home to come and uh, and be in the military. So the military really discouraged marriages, but this proved almost impossible. Uh, the first marriage takes place, um, in the spring of 1942. And this couple got married, uh, in secret in effect. And, um, Another historian who's written about this, Leanne McCormick, um, corresponded a bit with her about it, and she was saying that the publicity surrounding this probably stopped uh, the, the man involved from being disciplined. So the U.S. military, over the course of 1942, is trying to establish what its rules are for marriage. And they stress that uh, women marrying American soldiers will not become citizens uh, at least initially, um, they will not be uh, they will not be entitled to um, separation allowances or widows' pensions. Um, so there are barriers that are thrown up to try and stop women from uh, 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 local women from marrying Americans. There's also prejudice against war brides in the states. They're seen as gold diggers. Um, And by the end of the war, when these brides are trying to get to the States, uh, they're accused of taking up valuable space on ships, which should be bringing veterans home or prisoners of war or the wounded. Um, The attitude softens by the end of the war. And certainly where Northern Ireland's concerned, there are about 1,800 uh, war brides uh, by the end of the war.
1: Got it. And it it was interesting to see that by the end of the war, even after the war ended, there was... Again, this mix of sort of law and publicity in actually getting the women to the United States. As you said, there were concerns about space on the ships. Um, But I wanted to go back to something you mentioned right up at the beginning about this idea of the feelings of Irish-American soldiers. And one thing you explore throughout the book is nationalists had lots of views on US troops. There were differences whether amongst secular versus religious Um, obviously between the governments all well all four governments really um but how do you think that this sort of played out what was the fear around oh no some of the u.s soldiers might be catholic or oh no some of the u.s soldiers might have historic ties to one side of the border versus the other what were these fears and what happened in reality
2: Well, the fear was that uh, someone with an Irish-American background would be susceptible to uh, appeals from Irish nationalists or particularly from the IRA. Um, Now, what happened uh, on the UK mainland was that uh, the GIs were issued with um, a guide. There was one in Northern Ireland, which we can perhaps talk about, but they were issued with a guide that told them to forget all wars. You know, not to think of the British as the Red Coats or if they had Irish ancestors, to think of the British as their oppressors. It didn't matter. We were all allies now, so we should all fight together. Um, There are some reports from the US Consul in Belfast uh, which uh, talk about this fear. Um, And he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he says that um, soldiers from an Irish-American background had a ready ear... Um, to propaganda uh, from, uh, from Irish Republicans. Um, but as far as I can tell, it never really uh, went anywhere. There was a report um, that um, uh, someone sent to the, the Prime Minister. Brooke, when he became Prime Minister, got this report from uh, someone in Fermanagh who was complaining about a priest who was inviting Americans round, plying them with whiskey and filling their heads with uh, Republican ideas. He he wanted this stopped. Um, uh, But equally, uh, what you also see really from the moment that the Americans arrive is that the Unionist press are keen to get quotations from American soldiers on uh, partition, on um, uh, era's neutrality, on devil era, and so on. Uh, Most American soldiers say nothing and then they're given specific instructions to say nothing about the political situation in uh, in Northern Ireland.
1: What were, in particular, the relations that did seem to be encouraged if there were fears around Irish Americanism or Catholic um, soldiers? On the other hand, the government of Northern Ireland was quite happy to emphasise the ties between Northern Ireland, Ulster, and America. So what was that... Um, sort of potential viewed there what was the hope for these soldiers in terms of that relationship and again did anything come of it
2: well it's it's um, it's expressed in a number of ways what I found was that uh, when the Americans arrive then traditional um, unionist and Nationalist outlooks towards America have to be in effect inverted so uh, America is seen as a traditional ally of Irish nationalism, which makes it hostile to Ulster unionism. But uh, <clears throat> the, reverse is, the reverse becomes evident. So what happens from a unionist point of view is that they have to find a narrative uh, which uh, links Ulster to uh, the United States. Now, this worked in a couple of ways. Uh, at one level, it was done... Uh, in terms of the, the greater British nation, if you like, the greatest, greater British family of nations or the English-speaking peoples. Um, so it doesn't see Northern Ireland as, as separate. It sees Northern Ireland as part of a, a kind of pr- a British um, dynamic. Um, but at the same time, you have this reconnection with uh, th- a historic Ulster links with uh, America dating back to, as I mentioned earlier, dating back to the 17th and 18th centuries. And this took a number of forms. So as soon as the Americans arrive, these uh, links are being resurrected. Uh, And uh, it means that Ulster or unionists or Protestants can claim an earlier link to American friendship and the Catholic Irish, who only arrived in massive numbers after the famine of the 1840s, so it's put a claim, claim uh, claiming a prior friendship uh, that predates uh, nationalist Ireland's friendship with the United States. But it actually goes a little bit further than that, in that many of these early immigrants were Presbyterians, and uh, Presbyterians, <coughs> excuse me, Presbyterians, led claim not only to Um, being among the first Americans or the first Irish Americans, if you like, but also um, tried to lay claim to the philosophy of the revolution, uh, that it was Presbyterians and Ulster Presbyterians who played a lead role in the revolution, both in terms of providing um, some of what they termed some of Washington's best troops, but also in the philosophy which leads to the Declaration of Independence, leads to the Constitution and so on. So they're claiming uh, friendship uh, with America and also influence over what America becomes. Now, obviously there's a paradox here in that they are talking about a country that broke away from Britain, Um, uh, but they kind of try to ignore that. Now, from the point of view of nationalists, uh, they, uh, the nationalist press, nationalist newspapers, pretty much took the decision to ignore the American presence. So they're not really offering a counter-narrative to this. Uh, the sense being that if they uh, talk about it, they're almost legitimising uh, the presence of the Americans in Northern Ireland, so it's best just to ignore it until the war is over, and then they can pick up the propaganda campaign again um, in the States.
1: So going following that thread then, how... Do the Scotch-Irish and the Irish-American communities in the U.S. respond to the fact of U.S. troops in Northern Ireland during the war, but also after the war? How did the governments then relate to that? So how did this create connections or responses beyond just the deployment itself between these different communities across on either side of the Atlantic?
2: Well, I'll start with um, Irish-America. Irish-America's initial response was hostility towards the American presence. Uh, now, bear in mind that Irish Americans had been, uh, not, not entirely, but many had been active in the isolationist movement and had formed um, alliances, if you like, with the German American Bund and Charles Lindbergh and so on. Um, so uh, their initial reaction uh, was to uh, complain about this, but this was really quite unpopular in the States. And uh, I, and we have to bear in mind the broader context of uh, the position of Catholics in the States. Um, I thought there was still a degree of nativist hostility towards Catholics, um, particularly Irish Catholics. So uh, there is a need for Irish America to demonstrate its loyalty. And actually, when you look into it, uh, most Irish-Americans are loyal to America first and foremost, and the attachment to Ireland is, is sentimental and certainly doesn't displace their American patriotism. Um, so uh, Irish-Americans uh, kind of uh, hold off on this until the war is over, and the war's not over very long before Irish-America starts to, uh, uh, to kind of redefine uh, era's neutrality and uh, its role in the war. Uh, so uh, we we have that uh, element uh, to it. Um, as far as uh, Ulster Scots or Scotch Irish uh, are concerned, um, it it doesn't seem to have a huge impact in the states. Uh, there are a few uh, newspaper articles when the Americans arrive about about Northern Ireland, um, and to try and familiarise the American public with where their sons have been sent. Um, And this tends to emphasise links such as the fact that there were 12 or 13 presidents who claimed uh, an Ulster heritage, that a number of signatories of the Declaration of Independence were Ulstermen, usually second generation, uh, but they did claim an Ulster heritage. Uh, The person who printed the declaration was an Ulsterman. Uh, So they're trying to give, uh, the US press is trying to give uh, its readers a sense of what Northern Ireland is, um, but also differentiating it between uh, between it and uh, neutral era. Uh, so it doesn't the the difficulty that uh, unionists um, Protestants have in the states is that the Ulster dio- diaspora, if you want to call it that, is so thoroughly integrated with the, the more general, if you like, Anglo diaspora uh, that it, it kind of renders it indis- indistinct. Um, there is a Scotch Irish Society of America, centered around uh, Pennsylvania, but it's not the kind of um, vibrant, militant uh, diaspora that you have in Irish America in places like Boston and New York. It's not political in the sense that Irish America is uh, political and Irish America is really quite influential in the Democratic Party. So there's a kind of invisibility about the Ulster um, scots or the Scotch-Irish uh, diaspora in the States.
1: Interesting. It, it was That was a particularly interesting bit of the book to look at the differences and how communities approached assimilation or identity in the United States and then what kinds of repercussions that ended up having. Um, So obviously we don't have time to go into every single detail in the book which is why obviously I encourage people who are interested to read the book itself um, because there's obviously a lot more detail and a lot more aspects uh, that we cannot necessarily get into without just asking you to read the whole thing out loud to us. Um, but I was wondering if there were sort of one or two big takeaways from the book. Uh, what would they be, in your opinion?
2: I think, um, although I've written about it extensively before, I would go back to the, um, the issue of race. Um, this is the first encounter of, um, in some respects, the first encounter of a British population with race, certainly an Irish population with, um, with uh, race. Um, so that is something which I think is, uh, is really important and ties in with a lot of interesting, um, really excellent recent historiography on race in a broader British context. Uh, so that is, as again, going back to my background as a civil rights historian, uh, that's the thing that I perhaps find the most interesting. And actually, because I've written about it, um, previously, uh, I don't spend as much time on it in the book as, as I might have done. Um, so, for example, I don't look in a huge amount of detail at uh, a particular uh, case where um, the, the case that got me interested in this where an African-American soldier murders a local man. Um, and that brings out all sorts of interesting uh, stuff about local reactions, the nature of race in the American military um, judicial system and so on. So I think that's, um, that's perhaps the most interesting thing that I take from it. Other factors which um, in some respects surprised me are uh, would be the, the preparations, the fact that the Americans were building uh, bases okay, under the auspices of, of the, uh, the British in mid-1941. That uh, Churchill asked Roosevelt to send an American division in October 1941, so two months before, or November 1941, but definitely before Pearl Harbor, despite uh, America being neutral and Northern Ireland not being neutral. Um, the business about war brides, um, there's been some really good stuff written about women in Ireland, Northern Ireland uh, in this period. But one of the things missing is war brides and what happened to the war brides, which we talked a little bit about. But the war brides in early 1946, they were so frustrated that they occupied the US consulate, demanding transport uh, to the States to be with their husbands. And... Uh, The U.S. consul seems to have stopped all non-urgent business to get these ships and get these women over to their new homes. I thought that was uh, fascinating. Uh, Other material about um, David Gray, the U.S. minister in uh, Dublin, Um, he is not particularly popular, I think it's fair to say, either in the Dublin political establishment or in historiography around uh, Eamon, Eamon Devil Era. So I've tried to redress the balance of that somewhat, while accepting many of the criticisms of Gray are valid. Um, also, many of his criticisms of Devil Era and De Era's neutrality are also uh, valid, and his attitude towards Irish America is exaggerated, but it's not without foundation, some of his criticisms. Um, and although I don't really get to talk too much about it in the book, um, I'm hoping to write an article which will talk about uh, the legacy and memorialization of the Americans uh, in uh, Northern Ireland uh, and how this uh, this relationship, certainly from Storm's point of view, uh, tried they tried to continue it into the Cold War.
1: I'm glad that you picked up on quite a few of those pieces. Um, as someone who's obviously knows a lot less about this history than you do, those were actually many of the elements that I found most compelling as a reader as well. Um, And definitely some of the aspects that were the most surprising. Um, I think sometimes we might accidentally think that, well, what else is there to know about World War II? And I think your book does a really good job of exploring that there are a lot of aspects that despite the fact we have so many archives and so many books, and to some extent, people who still remember these things, um, there's a lot more still to excavate. So it was really great to have you eliminate Uh, illuminate that, sorry, in um, the book. So as much as this feels like a mean question to end on, given that your book has literally just come out, what are you working on now or next, if there's anything you're willing to share?
2: Uh, Well, the first thing is to, um, there was originally a chapter in the book on memorialization, um, but for reasons of space, that had to come out. So I'm hopefully going to turn that into an article submit for publication over the next six months to a year and uh, what i've been able to do with the the research for the book is uh, research for the next project and hopefully that will be um, kind of a sequel to the book in that it will look at northern Ireland, the united states and the early cold war and what this will do is it will look at anti-partition campaigns in the u.s uh, launched from Ireland but into the U.S. in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, uh, the efforts of the government of Northern Ireland to foster a relationship, formal or semi-formal relationship, with the United States, uh, the reluctance of the British government to facilitate this, um, and uh, and this this kind of culminates in um, a trip to the U.S. by Brooke in 1950, just as the Korean War is breaking out. Um, and not long after, um, era has de- declared itself a republic uh, and left the Commonwealth, which has, obviously has huge implications for Northern Ireland. So I'm going to look at it in that, con- uh, that context. And uh, this might be um, a series of articles. It might be another book. And one of the things I'm really looking forward to writing about is, um, and I could leave this as a teaser for your listeners, but I'm going to be writing about Harry Truman's Inkwell which I'm happy to uh, illuminate, but... um, I think think you
1: have to. I think we need a few minutes on that. Please tell us about the Zinkwell.
2: Well, um, the uh, Stormont government decided that uh, they wanted Brooke to go to the US on a Goodwill visit, and they wanted to present Harry Truman with a present uh, that was from the people of Northern Ireland. So they decided to create a silver inkwell uh, for Truman. The inkwell was going to be based or was based on uh, a memorial that was unveiled to the American troops in January 1943. So for the first anniversary, a memorial column was unveiled at Belfast City Hall. So the inkwell was based around this, and uh, Stormont went to a lot of trouble to... Um, get it designed and get it made. And actually they went for a London jeweler rather than a Belfast jeweler. So there's a whole um, process to try and get this made and uh, Brooke will take it to uh, the States, hopefully to present to Harry Truman. Now, as it turns out, Truman goes, uh, Brooke goes to the States, but he's not able to meet Truman. Now this was not a snub. Uh, Brooke was simply a low level official and, um, Truman had no real need to meet him. But the Inkwell was presented to uh, Truman by a general who had served in Northern Ireland um, and had a good relationship with uh, Stormont. And uh, the Inkwell went to the Truman Library where it um, was uh, in a box up until five or six years ago when I got in touch with them to see where it was. And uh, they found it uh, and they really no idea that they had it. So it's quite a, it's quite an impressive um uh quite an impressive ornament now um but it was that uh, it trying to symbolize a relationship between um uh the US and uh northern ireland and i suppose you could perhaps add the fact that uh the inkwell is now obsolete it is an antique as maybe an interesting uh, metaphor for uh this relationship
1: mm. Thank you for that. That's fascinating. I'm sure that would make a great article. Um, And I think your research in general will make good articles and at least from the perspective of this podcast, hopefully a book so that we could have you on again. Um, So thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Uh, The book is published this month, I believe, uh, by Bloomsbury Press. Reminder, it's titled Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War. Thank you, Dr. Topping, for sharing your time with us.
2: And thank you for having me all.